large portions of software development budgets are dedicated to testing code. A new component may take weeks to thoroughly test, and even then mistakes happen. If you consider software defects as security issues, then the concern goes well beyond an application temporarily crashing. Even minor bugs can cost companies a lot of time to locate the bug, resolve it, retest it in lower environments, and then deploying it back into production. The company SpeedScale provides an intelligent, Kubernetes-friendly testing toolkit that runs at build time. Their virtual SRE bot works inside automated release pipelines to forecast and test real-world conditions that the new code will encounter. This process requires no manual scripting because SpeedScale uses existing traffic to generate tests and mocks. The feedback is immediate after every build and covers regression, performance, fuzzing, and chaos tests automatically. In this episode, we talk with Ken Arens and Matt LaRay. Ken is a founder and the CEO at SpeedScale. Previously, Ken worked at New Relic as a senior director, Solutions Architects. Matt is a founder and CTO at SpeedScale. He previously was the VP of product at Observe. We discuss testing in distributed environments, how SpeedScale intelligently tests and mocks during builds, Kubernetes, and their future goals with SpeedScale. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. Great to be here. So you work on SpeedScale, and we'll get into what SpeedScale is, but I think of it as fitting into a lineage of products that are kind of like load testing or just automated testing systems that you can use on your application to give an idea of how it's going to perform in the real world in a way that perhaps things like unit testing wouldn't accomplish. So I guess I'd like to start off by maybe putting what you're building in historical context, how it compares to systems like like load testing. Yeah, sure. I'll take this one. I, I think that uh, this is a very common piece of feedback that we get. This looks like a load testing tool. I personally worked in the in the testing space previously for a company called ITKO, and we did some functional testing and and uh, and load testing. And there is certainly some overlap because when you're doing traffic replay, you're trying to put load on a system and understand its its performance. So from that standpoint, there's, there's absolutely some, some similarity. There's hundreds of tools in this space. Um, it's been dominated the last several years with, um, with open source. But of course, you know, we also believe that there's reasons why those uh, types of tools and systems don't work. And that's part of why we've created SpeedScale. So you do think the analogy holds some truth? Well, there's yeah, of course, of course, it holds some truth. There's a there's a bunch of overlaps with uh, with load and performance testing. We're really focused, I think, on gaps and things that you can't get if you want to sit down and try to try to load up your system. And increasingly, in these uh, kind of large deployment environments, you, you can't take a you know a simple uh, novel tool and say, hey, load load me up, hit me up with the exact same call a hundred times, and now I know the scalability of my system. That's not going to work. So let's talk a little bit about things in in a modern context. So obviously everything's on the cloud. We've got systems like Kubernetes or you could use GKE or EKS. The programming primitives, the release primitives are 
in large part different than they were five years ago. I think it's a, it's a little bit of a g- generational change from EC2 instances or obviously on-prem deployments. And obviously, whenever you have a generational turnover in uh, in infrastructure, you have a, a generational change in in you know the tools like the the load testing tools of last year's infrastructure don't make as much sense as as this year's infrastructure. Are there some paradigmatic changes in the world of infrastructure that are uh, tailwinds for speed scale? Yeah, so the one of the biggest ones which you've already touched on is is containerization and specifically Kubernetes. But, you know, we we chafe a little bit at the term uh, load testing because there's a class of tool that's very different than than what we do, but it does solve the same problem in a lot of ways. It says when we send this application to production, is it going to slow down or have other kinds of problems? So, um, yeah, I'd say that, that one of the things that we were super excited about in starting SpeedScale was the shift to Kubernetes. Um, I think there was a recent report from Andreessen that said that uh, 80% of enterprises, is that right, Ken? 80% of enterprises um, are utilizing Kubernetes in some way. And one of the things that really helps with what we do at SpeedScale is that it's really two things. One is it increases the iteration speed. So there's more deployments going out constantly and smaller units of work are fitting into each one of them. That's actually super helpful for our approach. And then the second one is that uh, there's more communication going on between services because what happens when you go to Kubernetes is you shrink all the units of work, right? And so you can scale horizontally. So you end up with microservices or whatever, uh, however you approach that, right? You end up with, uh, you know, container, containerization. So what happens is a lot of times the problem, the problem in the monolith world was a lot of times inside of the monolith, right? So you you valued this sort of deep visibility into getting like stack traces and looking all the way down. And what we've seen with, with Kubernetes and containerization is now a lot of the problems that arise in production systems are actually in the spaces between components, the communication between components, which is why, you know, that we, you know, we're pretty excited about, you know, that you, applying this concept of traffic replay between the containers to understand their load performance in, in production. So... Kubernetes, that's not really possible without containerization. So we're definitely riding that wave. So if I understood correctly, you're saying that understanding the communication path and the communication performance in two containers talking to one another is is something that you're focused on. Yeah, that's one of the things we're focused on. Yeah, the... uh, So, and again, (laughs) we'll probably get into talking about speed scale in specific, what it does more as we go along. But, you know, one of the first things that we struggle with, uh, we struggle as engineers with, right, is is understanding how our, our processes communicate with other processes. So that's the first thing that SpeedScale, you know, tackles. We're, we're not a monitoring tool for production. That's not, you know, we're not a, we're not like a, any, of, any of the major monitoring vendors or any of that. But what we do do is we show detailed down to the payload information of the, the API calls going between two containers. And what that allows to do us to do, like first off, right, is is just illuminate what that container is doing, both who it's calling to, as well as what calls are coming into it. And so that's kind of the basis for everything else that we, you know, we do. And Kubernetes makes that a lot easier to do. Okay, so I guess we can just dive into speed scale. Tell me what problem you're solving in a little bit more detail and what the insertion point is for a typical application. 
Yeah. So the problem that we're working on is despite huge advantages in modern technologies and cloud and the pace that everyone wants to release things, we still commonly have a lot of incidents that make their way to production. It's too hard to understand how this code is going to behave when you have lots and lots of services, lots of different teams, and everyone is trying to throw their changes into the pot. So what we do at SpeedScale is we let you separate the pieces out. If you're a team that's only working on the ordering system and you don't own the customer backend and you don't own the third-party APIs, we actually let you separate yourselves from those and understand your own performance profile. We produce what you would think of as SLO kind of metrics, very simple metrics, latency, throughput, error rate, kind of the infrastructure, how much infrastructure is needed to run it. And we give you that data in pre-prod before you release it to production, where if you've made a mistake, it's hard to fix. So give me an example of a issue that SpeedScale would help to capture and prevent. So let's say we're updating that order system. It's, um, you know, maybe we're unlucky, it's written in Java and we, we just go, hey, we wanna update one of these Java dependencies. We go into our Maven setting and say, get the, grab the next version, but that has some synchronized code in it that we're calling that's gonna cause a performance degradation. We haven't made any other change. Typically this goes through, hey, we do a peer review. This is a real simple change. Let's approve it, build the container, all your unit tests and things have passed. And when you push it to production, you'll find out a little bit later that suddenly the system has started running more slowly and people have to try to figure out what's changed, no code change, blah, blah, blah. With SpeedScale, we will literally create that event that you get in production, tons of load, whatever is your throughput goal, we will push that in pre-production. You didn't have to write a test case. You didn't have to uh, sit down and try to think of all the ways the API is called. We know all the ways the API is called because we, we built this out of a traffic capture, out of the real traffic that was used in the system. And we prevent that degradation of service or, uh, or incident or outage from really happening and affecting customers. Just kind of extending on that a little bit, you know, that that's because we're doing that, that traffic replay, you know, Jeff, to answer your question, Kind of specifically, you know, we, we can ramp up and down load by using clever tricks. Like if, if we only saw 100 users in the production system, you know, we can make that 1,000, right? And so we can start to uncover problems like concurrency or, you know, race conditions or hardware, you know, inappropriately sized uh, clusters or nodes. We can go and uh, find resource leads, et cetera, et cetera. And we can do that without the pain of hitting like file new test. Right, like without, without the developer actually having to think about what test cases do I want, what do I want my null testing to be, what do I want all these other, you know, I don't have to design these tests, and so that's the kind of issues we find just by replay, right? Without with automation. So, so tell me a little bit more about what happens on the speed scale side, like when a test is is being executed. So, what happens like in the pre-release process on, on your side when you're st- on your infrastructure, like what's being stood up and what's actually happening on your side? Yeah, so this this part's actually pretty clever. We have in a Kubernetes environment, we have a Kubernetes operator and we register to listen for deployments 
So you're deploying the next version of order API or, and you put an annotation on there that has a speed scale instruction. It says, run this scenario, it's a named scenario. And like Matt mentioned, where, where maybe you wanna do the 10 times the amount of traffic that was recorded. So that's like a configuration. You add those two pieces of data in your annotation. Our operator um, notices that you're doing that and we prepare an environment. And this is actually run in the customer environment. So it's on, they choose the infrastructure to run it in, but we will actually pull down the traffic and say, oh, you're making a third party call to like, we have a customer who's, who uh, makes calls to the Google Gmail API into Office 365. We'll pull down the correct traffic and we will actually mock out those on the fly. And when that, uh, we call that the responder. When the responder is ready, then the application starts, uh, your deployment that, that you initially deployed. And then once the deployment is ready, which we know from a liveness probe, then we start the replay into the pod that's called the generator. So we kind of have a sandwich with on one side, we're playing transactions in, you have your code in the middle. And on the other side, we're taking care of all your dependencies. And when the thing is complete, we clean it all up. So the default state is everything's off. A naive question. How is this any different than just unit testing like how is this different than just standing up a service in staging and testing you know your your battery of, of unit tests against it it's pretty different from unit testing uh, we, we write unit tests love unit tests it's fantastic unit tests are focused on your algorithm right like well sorry i guess i should say integration integration tests would be the thing it would be more similar to yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is a type of an integration test. So in the customers we're talking to, uh, they typically have to build the entire end-to-end -end environment. And so you have to build the whole thing. And then the integration test is done at the GUI tier. And increasingly what you're seeing, and especially when you move to Kubernetes, is lots and lots of your code is actually in the back end. And it's buried in these various services, and they're all owned by different teams. So I'm a team who's five steps away from the GUI tier and every once in a while, something that happens on the GUI causes a call into my API. It's very hard to understand if I'm making a change, is, is my code change gonna have a performance impact? Are we gonna load up the entire cluster so that 1% of the calls weaves their way over to my API? Because if I have a performance problem, it's hard to detect it that way. So instead what we're doing is we're disintegrating the problem um, down into small chunks. Each service uh, gets gets full treatment. <laughs> Instead of building the entire thing and trying to test it as one giant unit, you're, that's not how they're developing the software. They're developing it as these separate components. Each component gets um, its own full test harness. Does it does SpeedScale eliminate the need for other forms of integration testing? So. SpeedScale eliminates a certain percentage of integration testing, right? So one of the problems of integration tests, as, as Ken said, is that it is rare or it's very difficult to have a correct copy of production data, right? And then every time you, you, know, you run through your test battery, you are going to have to reset the databases, right? And get them back to their, you know, to their, their initial state. 
Um, you're going to have to uh, run up your Gmail bill. If you're, let's say you're sending emails, right? You're actually going to have to set, set some sort of test with Gmail or sorry, with the Gmail API or Office 365 API, et cetera. So for many types of integration tests, the speed scale um, sort of playback of responses we've already seen and that sandwiches Ken talked about is actually uh, good enough. Now, it's disingenuous to say that it replaces all integration tests because there's there's still some things that you, you can't do other than getting the entire system together. They're like if you've made you know significant API contract changes or whole you know rearchitectures or big 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 shifts. Obviously, you you still need to do integration tests. You know what we're really trying to do in some ways is make it so you don't have to run that integration test very often, and you can think of this sort of uh, system or container to container test happening almost as part of the CI system. You could theoretically do it on every, you know, every PR if you wanted to, or every merge request or whatever, you know, so speed scales can sort of run in the background and give you, you know, 60, 70% of an integration test, but there's still room for an integration test in the world. (laughs) Again, I don't know if you'd add anything to that, but. Yeah, I would add to it that there's a big use case around the responders. This is a, a key enabling technology that enables all different types of testing, actually, including uh, things like chaos uh, testing, where you say, what if I make a call to this third party, but the third party has a problem? What if I'm making a call to a payment API and it fails? How does my system respond? So we can actually force those uh, failure modes and error conditions to happen as well. So in a way, we're also expanding the test capabilities and the types of things um, that you're going to run into. Another reason why I think it's it's a little bit of an uh, alternative to that integration testing is the real world is messy. The real world of production has gross things happening. It has a robot that's crawling you. That it has. Uh, we have a customer whose Prometheus is always hitting the wrong endpoint with the wrong configuration, and it causes an error. That is a normal condition that exists in production, and you should replicate it. And a developer would never sit down and make a weird test like that. But when we record the traffic, we'll play it back that way. And if that error happens to cause a problem with your code, you'd be happy that you uh, found it in pre-prod and not after the release. So you mentioned chaos testing. How does this kind of integration testing compare to chaos testing? So, so actually, chaos testing at the application layer is part of what, what we do well. So... This is not the same thing as like, uh, you know, the early Netflix stuff where it would just shut down a server. Uh, What we do instead is we do chaos at the transaction level. So, for example, let's say that I'm I'm call I'm I'm testing a service and that service is making a call to a backend database. What we have the ability to do at SpeedScale is randomly force one transaction out of ten to slow down, or all transactions to slow down, or uh, give a bad response once in a blue moon right? Like a rogue transaction, all the things that happen in, in production, but you, but are very, very hard to simulate. So that's actually a chaos feature that we have. So in, in one sense, it's different than infrastructure chaos in that, you know, you're not just playing whack-a-mole with servers and things like that, but it's something that at least I'm not aware of. You'd have to write it yourself, but it's sort of built into our product where you're, you know, you can, you can go and say, what's going to happen if I start, you know, throwing 404s where I used to get 200s, right? How resilient is my system? at the at the trans application transaction level. So you have a system where you can store traffic and then replay traffic to see so that basically stakeholders can see what happens 
for actual sessions, for actual traffic replay. Can you explain like what is the worth of of traffic replay? Like why is that core to to what you do and who who does it provide value for? Yeah, so it's good that you uh, that that you mentioned this because we actually see two places where value is coming from with our platform. We kind of sprinkled them both in, but just to to sort of summarize, there's one set of value which is what is the data flowing through my application when a call comes in. Uh, what's in it? What's in the HTTP headers? Is there a body? What's in the body? Why does this XML have all this extra junk in it? Uh, that's XML for you. Um, you know, why is why am I getting someone hitting my API with the old definition? I had a customer who said we we still have a customer hitting us with a six year old version of the API request, and we still support it. Guess what? None of the new developers test with <laughs> the six year old version of the code. So one part of what we deliver and offer, Matt mentioned this earlier, is visibility into what's going on. We tell you all the inbound transactions, we show you all the outbound transactions, and we have a little analysis mode, which will tell you, here's the protocols, technologies that you're using. It's a mix. We had a customer who, we've actually had multiple, who said, that's not connected to that. We didn't make it up. It's what, the, it's what was observed. Or they said, I didn't realize for the same backend API, I have to call three different host names. Well, that's your backend API vendor. That's how it works. So there's one whole aspect, which is just getting more visibility. It's not aggregated. It's not summarized. It's not being filtered in some way. It's very pure and, uh, and gives you a lot of data. And then the second part is a use case of what we do with this data is we let you replay it. So instead of sitting down and writing tests, replay that same, replay the traffic from 15 minutes ago in production against the next version of the code. It lets you answer the question, what if I deployed this right now? You know, What would it look like? How would this exact one, you can look at your monitoring tool and what the performance profile is, and you can compare it to what you play back. And that comes out, it looks like a report. It looks a lot like a, like a monitoring system. What was your response time and throughput and stuff? So these, we see two different value areas, if that makes sense, so one around visibility and seeing what's happening. And this other one around kind of preventing production incidents by by replaying what they're about to experience. So I'll kind of add on top of that a little bit is one of our customers, just to make it concrete, they call a backend, a backend API that is, they call a backend API that's very, very expensive. It's actually the Gmail and Office 365 API, as I mentioned before. And they call it with thousands and thousands and thousands of calls. And the, the issue that they get into is that they're having a performance problem. They, they know about the performance problem, right? They know they have something wrong, but it's incredibly hard to fix. And it's hard to fix because they can't replicate the production environment and they can't cost effectively test against those backend APIs. So as Ken mentioned with the responder service, what they do is they basically make a copy of those APIs based on the traffic that we've recorded and move it to the developer's desktop, right? So every developer, you know, uh, 50 developers, right? Each have their very own copy of production Gmail and Office 365 that, uh, that they can bounce against. And so it, it allows them to very rapidly test like, you know, the fixes to their code. So, you know, they, they go and they say, okay, I want to speed things up. Let me try this. Okay, now run it against those backend services. And it doesn't incur any costs because it's, it's the responder is like a container that they can run themselves, right? And it's all the real data. It responds just like the production system does. And so they go through this rapid iteration loop where they can make a, uh, I think they claimed a 500% performance increase very, very quickly. 
because they're not relying on these systems that are flaky and falling apart or, you know, or systems that they're going to get metered on or, or, or throttled or et cetera. So it kind of moves the production environment onto the developer's desktop. I, I guess I, I, I lost the lead a little bit there. So if I'm, let's say I'm a service owner in an organization and I've got other dependencies that I'm hitting with my service and those those downstream dependencies might be like an external API, like the Gmail API. Instead of having to hit the actual Gmail API, you're giving me a mocked container that that replicates what the Gmail API would be doing? You got it. And more specifically, it's the exact calls. It's aware of the exact transactions and payloads that uh, the system in production sent to Gmail. So it's not like a, it's not like a, you know, a Rube Goldberg machine where you send it a request and we have some code that runs, a mock that we made up, you know, all these other things. It's actually going to play back what we recorded. So if you say, I, you know, if, you, if your production system says, uh, I sent an email to my, you know, to, to my user number one, and then I got a response back that said, yes, we got that. And then another email came in. All of that is gonna be replicated in that container that's uh, that, that the developer has access to. I, I think that this is the key. Hitting the Gmail API one time is no problem, right? The issue is the data that's in it. So specifically what, what we did is we, we actually went and recorded like three different um, email addresses. The, the testing team had set up. They each had thousands of emails, calendar items all over their calendars and tasks, all these kind of features you use in Gmail. Then uh, we flipped the switch and said, you can send any email address you want and we'll respond with one of those three. And this enabled them to do a 10,000 email address, which would have taken them weeks to uh, generate all that test, fake test data. There's also no, no teardown, no reset or anything. It's just running in this little Docker container for them. So it's, it's not just that I can call the API and get a response, but that it has the correct response. It has a realistic response. Um, when we did Office 365, you create all these folders. The test account had like uh, 300 folders in it, and each of them had emails in them. So we didn't guess it or try to uh, supply data. It was real data from the real live system. So is this basically the goal is ensuring that my AI communication between my the service that I own and the, the downstream service that I'm calling, is it ensuring that the compatibility doesn't break? So if, if you go back to Matt's use case, there's a, there's a couple of things. One, one is you definitely don't want your compatibility to break. <laughs> but, but the second one is you want to iterate fast. And you want to try this, try that, run experiments, do whatever. And if you think of the sort of pain of merging to master, getting a build, ask, you know, getting it deployed into a staging environment, running an integration test and all this stuff. And it, when that takes uh, hours and days, you're not going to run a lot of experiments. When I can run it locally on my own machine or in my own cluster, I'm going to run a lot of experiments. And this is why they got this huge cycle time improvement. And actually that customer in particular was, was doing a major refactor of their code. They were taking a big monolith app. They were breaking it into microservices. It was moving from EC2 instances into Kubernetes clusters. And this whole thing around the dependencies was a non-issue. 
they, they didn't have to worry about how they called all these other uh, systems. And it enabled them to rapidly speed up their, um, their own application development. So it's, it's not all a testing thing, if it makes sense. Like there's this uh, developer efficiency that I get that I don't have to go and talk to everybody and set up all these things or engage another testing team or something like that. I can be really productive with knowing I'm in my box and I can, I can uh, do everything with my code and all the stuff outside of my responsibility is already taken care of me by speed scale. Let's talk a little bit about the engineering behind how that actually works. So you've got the traffic that I've generated from my service. That traffic is stored. I just like to know what what you're doing to spin up this mock downstream service. Uh, like what's actually happening? How is that engineered? So as you said, the first step for speed scales, we have to get what we call a traffic snapshot, okay? So that's the recording of the inbound transactions and the outbound calls. So usually that's based on time frame, but it can be filtered by other things, right? Other criteria. So now we have this snapshot, like it's like two scissors, you know, snipping a piece of ribbon, right? So we take that snapshot and we put it through um, an analyzer process. Because one of the things that, that you figure out pretty quickly, if, you, if you've ever tried to solve this problem on your own, you know, if you've ever tried to create uh, sophisticated mocks or sophisticated low generation, like automation, um, is that one of the things you figure out is that there are a lot, there's a lot of parameterization and tokenization that needs to take place in the data in order to make it seem realistic. So sort of the easy example would be dates, right? If you've ever wrote, written an application that has JWTs or JOTs, right? JWTs are used for authentication and they are signed within a particular time frame. So let's say that that time frame is 10 minutes. Right. So if you start playing all that trans, all that traffic back, it's not going to work. Right. And, you know, there's a there's a, a hundred different variations of this problem, you know, dates and authentication and usernames and all kinds of different things that, that have to be automated and changed. So when we take that traffic snapshot, we put it through this analyzer process and we we parameterize everything and we prepare it to be played back. All right. So from there. It's like a, you know, we take a pair of scissors and we cut it and cut it down the middle. And on one side, on the left side is all the data that we're going to send to the service. So like, as you said, in the beginning of this conversation, that's what we make the load test out of. Okay. So that's, that goes into, you know, we, we kept things, everything nice and simple is we basically put it into a file, right? And the file gets loaded onto our generator container. Yeah, the generators, like a hundred generators that have been written throughout history, uh, that's not that's not the special sauce. But the generator is sort of a, a tokenized, a tokenized aware load generator, and it's it's ready to play this, the the file back. And it's you know it's pretty straightforward. It's it's JSON. It's readable and editable by the developer. You know, obviously this is a tool for engineers, so everything's kind of changeable as you go along. So that's the left half, right? As we cut it down the middle, the the snapshot. So that's the left half. We do the load generation. Now the right half, when we cut the traffic in half, is all those all the traffic that we saw coming out of the system. So that is the calls going out to the Gmail, you know, API, or the Office API, or integration buses, or whatever it is, right? The databases, etc. And that gets downloaded in a file, goes through the same sort of parameterization process, and then it gets loaded onto our responder container. So those are the two main component, two main components: our responder and generator component that are loaded with this snapshot of data. Now, once you're ready to play it back, there's kind of two modes right now that we see. Mode number one is you have access to a Kubernetes cluster and you want to go and run a new piece of code. 
So you go, and as Ken said earlier, right, you take your YAML, let's say it's, you know, let's say it's, it's a YAML file or a Helm chart or whatever it may be, and you put an annotation that says, when I deploy this, right, I want SpeedScale to take over. And so what we do is when we see that annotation in the YAML, we basically grab control of that, that deployment and we, and we halt it for a second, right? Just a second, but we halt it and we say, okay, they want, they want speed scale to make this, we need to make this service think that it is running in a production environment. So what we do is uh, inside of Kubernetes, we're, we're kind of Kubernetes, uh, we've gotten to be, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, I don't think anybody's an expert on Kubernetes, but we've certainly learned a lot about it over the last year and a half, but uh we go into that service and that deployment, we're kind of holding it in stasis and we make changes to the network, you know, and, and the configuration of it so that we can transparently make it think it's running in production. So that means we wire it to our generator on one side. So it, it thinks that real clients are sending things to it. Then we wire it to our responder so that it thinks when it calls out to, you know, the Gmail API, for instance, right, that it's, it's instead going to our responder, but it's not aware of that. And so there's a bunch of network foo, you know, that we do there and also, you know, modifications and other things, but it's all transparent, right? It's all automated, you know, and then when, then, then, okay. So once we've got those things spun up, our generator responder, we've rewired everything. Then we let the deployment go and it acts like a normal Kubernetes deployment. And so when it goes out, then it runs through its tests and we can run whatever scenarios we're looking to run against it. So that's mode number one for deployment. So mode number two, which we've also talked about is more of a piecemeal approach where, a developer might use something like Docker Compose to test it on their desktop. And this is, so what, what that looks like for us, as we said, you know, some of our customers do this, this is more like a developer efficiency thing. So, so I spend a lot of time in Go and I'm always trying new experiments and new iterations to usually to fix things that are broken, but, uh, and I need like a mocked backend service that I can run against and see, you know, make it feel like it's real. So in that mode, we go and we take that responder, which has all of the, all of the data that we, you know, that we cut out of the snapshot and then I can run it inside of my Docker environment and I can use my service, you know, can, can replay it directly against it. It makes me curious about what are some of the key engineering problems that you've had to, to solve in actually um, making that a reality. What Matt talked about, the tokenization problem, that's a, that's a major class of, uh, of challenge. And, you know, like he said, you can't just take traffic and replay. So, so that is one whole class of... It looks kind of like an ETL process where we're going through and figuring out, oh, this has to be transformed, this has to be transformed, and so on. That's a, that, that's one of the big challenges. Another is actually how we're doing the capture itself. Most of the interesting services that people use are uh, secure and have security. So we have to deal with that security, typically at the network layer. So, you know, things like dealing with the TLS certificates, getting things configured as a transparent way to collect the data. Uh, that was a pretty big, you know, set of challenges that, that that we worked on. And I think Matt's also kind of oversimplifying just a big scale to this. We're taking advantage of kind of cloud data warehouse type of solutions around how data is stored and run through our analyzer engine so that we can kick out these files. The file at the end looks real simple, but the process to get it was is actually quite involved. So not to mention, you know, we want to be keeping a Kubernetes microservice environment ourselves. So we're real familiar with the challenges customers have. And so we, you know, we do it with one arm tied behind our back while we deploy Kubernetes and, and uh, keep all that running as well. I'll just double, double click a little bit more on this because this, this is an engineering podcast. So we'll, we'll go into a few of those. So there's really, there's, as Ken said, there's kind of three, three major category of engineering challenge that we face. 
the first one is the recording system, which is we we have to do what a, in some ways what a monitoring system does, except we actually have to grab the, grab the payloads. So like a mo most of your monitoring systems, they can aggregate things. You know, they can like roll things up into like a, a metric that reports once a minute or whatever it may be. We have to go and actually look at the payload. So there's there's a lot of complexity around things like caching or uh, filtering or deduplication and a lot of other things, right? Because you you can't just do like straight du deduplication. You actually have to understand that certain parts will change and certain parts will don't. Then you have to move hundreds of gigabytes of data around, right? To, to, and you have to do it fast without impacting the production system. There's a, a lot of our engineering effort goes into that problem actually. Then as Ken said, there's a, there's a storage issue, which, you know, fortunately a lot of what's going on in the cloud right now, you know, we're kind of piggybacking on what a lot of the cloud data warehouses are doing. Um, in fact, one of the big things we get from engineers is they say, especially when they start at SpeedScale, they say, this seems impossible it seems impossible to record this amount of data. And then we'll say, well, actually look at all the advances that have been made for other things like, you know, what, whatever, right? Um, analytics tools and other things. And then it, it's, it's made a lot of this stuff really possible where it wasn't before. And then the other category of problem, honestly, is just that uh, Kubernetes is, is a fantastic system, right? It's a fantastic platform. There's a reason so many people are going to it, but it also is something that changes a great deal. So as you can imagine, we're, we're integrated into the Kubernetes, we're integrated pretty tightly into Kubernetes, much like uh, Istio would be, like some of the service message, meshes. So getting along with service meshes and writing operator, the operator and other things that make it work, that's just a massive, like, you know, it's like the Batman decoder ring, <laughs> you know, just we're constantly finding new combinations and making sure everything's good. Now, the good thing is, is that there's an 80-20 rule to that where we hit, you know, we hit a lot of the issues and then they really... They don't really repeat, right? You know, that we, we find those, but um, there's always some work to be done there. So that's why we're hiring. But anyway, <laughs> there's no shortage of engineering challenges. So Okay, now I'm pretty curious about the data side of things. So uh, you mentioned you're using cloud data warehouses, and that's to store the traffic data. Is that right? So there's several different kinds of data that we record, like every other system, right? Um, but the raw data, the traffic data, yeah, that's that's what we're using. Yeah, that's that's one piece of it. And are you using these the cloud data warehouses as like transactional data? Because it doesn't sound like you're using them like analytical databases. You're not aggregating them or anything. You're, you're actually using the traffic data that's stored in the data warehouse? Yeah, so without getting too much into the, the secret sauce, I guess, in some ways, or what's going on the cloud side, because it's constantly evolving. But what we try to do is create the fastest pipeline from the network to disk, at least initially. And that's a lot of our engineering effort is getting the fastest pipeline straight to disk. Then what we, we, we have, a, as Ken mentioned earlier, we have kind of like an ETL pipeline that goes and transforms the data over certain stages. And it's like a large funnel, right? So we, we have custom processes written in Golang that will go and narrow the data down, right? And parameterize it until we can work on it in a traditional database format. So what you said, you know, the question I think you asked is, you know, like, can you apply the analytics database? Yes, but after we go through a few stages of the funnel, we'll we'll run on, um, you know, we'll go and make use that to make a, a performance report or a chaos report, right? To show you, hey, here's all the chaotic things that we did, you know, stuff like that. But that's sort of the end result. And that's where we really make, uh, take advantage of the massive horsepower <laughs> that uh, a lot of these cloud systems provide. So wait, so say, say more about, you're trying to find the fastest path to disk for this data. What do you mean by that? Why is that important? So most of the environments we, or not most, but um, some of the environments we run into have very high transaction throughput, 
right? So if you install SpeedScale and our recorder, right? What we, yeah, our, if you call our, our, our proxy service or whatever it may be, it installs like Istio, right? It's just like a, you put an operator on, pretty transparent, takes care of things for you, just add an annotation. Most of those systems have high data volume to start with, right? So if it's an order system, as, as Ken mentioned, that's that's one of uh, people love putting us on the order system for some reason. Um, uh, if, if we put us on an order system, if, if it's a successful business, there are going to be gigs and gigs of data that are flowing through both sides of the application. So duplicating all of that is uh, ex- is a, could, could be extremely heavy, right? Uh, duplicating payloads. So a lot of what we, you know, kind of the, what we spend our time working on is figuring out clever ways to uh, filter filter out what we record and also so that it still is realistic and can be reproduced, but filtering out data that we have and then uh, getting everything to disk as quickly as possible and then coming up with data management strategies. So like you, you can't keep stuff around forever. What parts of the data do you keep on the customer's cluster, right? Because if we're recording to disk on the cluster, what parts do you keep on the cluster or send to our central repository? You know, things like that. That's, I can't really sum it up in a, in a 10 minute conversation, but there's a lot of work that we do around figuring out those, those formulas, if you will. Interesting. So you're basically developing an entire like tiered storage system. <laughs> yes, <laughs> much. Yeah, <laughs> which is a great for our customers, but much to my pain. Yes, we're we're developing like a tiered storage system. You know, yeah, it's like a funnel. We think of it like a funnel, at least. You know, some things can be discarded, like a ring buffer. You know, and then they've got it. We got to kind of move up the stack from there and get progressively more detailed in what we actually keep around. Otherwise, we you know you don't want to go bankrupt. Uh, I hear that's bad for startups to go bankrupt. <laughs> so we try not to do that. <laughs> Just help me understand, like, what are the... So if you think about the tiered storage system and, like, some of it is fast to access and expensive, some of it is slow to access and cheap, what do you need along those tiers? Like, what kinds of data for your customers do you need to keep along those tiers? So what we store at the... what we store. And this is actually we're, we're still developing this. We are, you know, we are only a year and change old, so it's not like we have a, a, a sweet, you know, a perfect answer for all of these things. But when we think about what we keep in the cluster, right, that is a full fidelity copy. It's the way to think about it, right? We're going to dump it, try to keep it as full fidelity as possible. And then what we're looking for in our forwarder service, which is like a, you know, it's like a like an agent, like many, it's, it's not actually an agent, but it's a, you know, it's just a it's just a a pod that runs in the Kubernetes service. What it's looking for is patterns, right? Like filtering, you know, things that we can filter on and recognize the pattern instead of having to send everything up, right? So from there, we send it over a transport mechanism, which is in flux, right? But, you know, with our early customers, it was AWS Firehose, right? Because that's just was easiest to implement at the time. But we send things up AW, you know, send it up AWS Firehose. And then we go and say, okay, what parts are we going to keep into, you know, put into, you know, S3 buckets, let's say, or whatever, Right. Then from there we go and we we can re- we reconstruct the data, right? So we go and we piece it back together, and then you know that's part of our analyzer process. So I'm probably not doing a very good job of explaining it. I don't know if Ken wants to jump in, but uh, yeah, I think I, I think one thing I would add is as part of the ingest, we have th- think of it like uh, images, right? So there's a rich amount of content that's like the the original traffic that was recorded, but we also have gathered all this metadata about it. So where we got it from, what was the URL, what, you know, um, what was the pod that it came from, and so on. So uh, we actually split, we keep everything. So we keep that original part, but that metadata we load into a faster uh, type of database so that uh, customers can visualize what's my throughput of what's going through right now. 
what are the URLs that are being accessed right now? What are the host names that people are hitting? And they can then make informed decisions and say, I want to drill in. And then when they go to that drill in, then that's when we're tapping that um, slightly slower storage, if that makes sense. So you have this kind of fast sort of time series database-esque type of data that we want to load uh, quick for the user. But then we can we can dip in deep. This is actually part of our sort of clever engineering that you know people may not notice on, on how we're able to, to dip in and get that huge amount that's attached to that little time series metric. Okay, really cool. Can you tell me more about what are some of the the other cloud services or infrastructure components that you're using in your architecture? Maybe non-obvious ones. So we actually, I think we've mentioned many of the ones that we're using. You know, we, we use Kubernetes for our own backend system. You know, S3 is about the, the least expensive storage option, cloud-based storage option that, that you can get. We're using different time series databases, you know, and different ways of visualizing the data. Uh, so we're actually running some experiments. We're using um, Elasticsearch. We're using TimescaleDB. We're using InfluxDB. These are all ways to graph kind of the, the metadata. We've had to build a lot of our own tools for, for certain things. We were kind of on the flipping back to the customer side of things. We were hoping we could, we could leverage some of the CNCF projects like Envoy and Istio and Istio has a WebAssembly module that came out a couple of months ago. And for initially, we, we, we weren't able to get those to work the way we wanted because we wanted, a, you know, kind of control freaks. We wanted a lot of control of how the data was, was captured and that kind of thing. But those are some we're exploring now. We might be able to switch our collection or supplement our collection and use other types of uh, proxies that people are already using. And that list will become very long. Uh, so if, if, uh, if you look, there's tons of things like ingress and API gateways. There's a whole class of those, again, in, in sort of CNCF. And uh, we'll be able to tap those and say, OK, we just want to tap in and get a little stream of the, the traffic that's flowing through. You don't have to use our sidecar, right? So I don't know if that's, if that's part of what you're looking for, but in the, in the Kubernetes ecosystem, this is part of the thrash and change and constant uh, changing that, that that you see is happening. And I, I saw 121 just uh, just drop last week, and we got to go through and figure out, <laughs> you know, do we have to change any of our manifests for it? But but there's actually a lot in that Kubernetes ecosystem that I'd like to tap into over time. Great. Well, we've covered a lot about speed scale itself. I guess I'd like to close off by just zooming out and getting your perspectives on how infrastructure is changing and, and what kinds of changes you anticipate in the next five years or so. Um, what do you think is, or do you think there's any, any dramatic effects that are going to change in the, in the near, near term? So, so I know I just went, but I, I love this question because when we were starting SpeedScale and, you know, the three co-founders, we were all talking about, you know, different parts of the problem we could, we could work on. I really wanted us to work in the Kubernetes ecosystem. And I could tell, you know, it, it already was, you know, uh, five or six years old at that point, but its growth has been incredibly fast because People want to have more control over how their cloud native services work. They want to say, I want to run it in my own data center. I want to run it in Google's cloud. I want to run it in AWS. And you're seeing serverless is, is starting to go in a similar way. 
instead of building a serverless that only runs in one in one cloud environment, potentially if I can rehome it into one of these Kubernetes offerings uh, or CNCF offerings, then um, I can run it anywhere I want. And this is going to unlock a kind of a freedom for the people who are doing deployments where they say, instead of getting kind of stuck with a cloud vendor and a certain version of their database or a certain version of their storage or whatever, storage is another big, you know, huge area, right, for, for Kubernetes. If you can containerize, if you can pay the manifest tax and get your thing rehomed into Kubernetes, it becomes incredibly portable. That was that was one of our first major projects we worked on was, uh, you know, we mentioned this customer who's rehoming their EC2, you know, based apps into microservices, into Kubernetes. First thing they did was to run it in Google. And that gave them this level of flexibility. So I think that's a huge trend that I see is Kubernetes is the enabling technology, not just Kubernetes, but all the ecosystem of things around it. It lets you have a lot of ownership. You can move it. You can run Minikube on your desktop, keep your fire extinguisher close by in case your laptop catches on fire, but it can be done. And, and I think that's awesome. And I, and I love it. So anyway, I'll, I'll let, I'll let Matt add his, uh, his, his thoughts as well. I think my thoughts on this are an extension of yours, Ken, but they are, so I think that the, what's going on with the changes in data, like privacy, the way that people are looking at privacy is, is radically changing the enterprise, archi- you know, the, the enterprise architecture space. So a few years ago, I don't think it was as big of a priority for your Fortune 2000 companies to, they were kind of okay with having some of their data sprinkled around. Um, our observation uh, with the people we've talked to is that that's shifting. Uh, there's a, there's a, f- a fear, a downright fear, right, of losing control of that data and it getting out in ways that you didn't expect. And I think as it, it kind of extends into what Ken said is that Kubernetes is really an enabler for customers to retain some of that control while still getting the benefits that SaaS gave you. You know, SaaS sort of made everything run more efficiently. Um, you know, any you know, SaaS services are, you know, they live and die based upon the, the efficiency of the infrastructure in some ways. And Kubernetes is a way for a lot of these enterprises to still retain some of that, cede some control, but really, you know, retain that data, data privacy that they're that they they must have now. You know, that's, it's all, I mean, even in just the last couple of years, the whole, a lot of the security questionnaires we get have just changed radically um, around that, so. Cool. Well, that sounds like a great place to wrap up. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us.